Part six of the Island of Doctor Moreau. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter fifteen concerning the beast folk. I woke early. Moreau's explanation stood before my mind clear and definite from the moment of my awakening. I got out of the hammock and went to the door to assure myself that the key was turned. Then I tried the window-bar and found it firmly fixed. That these manlike creatures were in truth only bestial monsters, mere grotesque travesties of men, filled me with a vague uncertainty of their possibilities which was far worse than any definite fear. A tapping came at the door, and I heard the glutinous accents of Emling speaking. I pocketed one of the revolvers, keeping one hand upon it, and opened to him. "'Good morning, sir,' he said, bringing in, in addition to the customary herb breakfast, an ill-cooked rabbit. Montgomery followed him. His roving eye caught the position of my arm, and he smiled askew. The puma was resting to heal that day, but Moreau, who was singularly solitary in his habits, did not join us. I talked with Montgomery to clear my ideas of the way in which the beast-folk lived. In particular, I was urgent to know how these inhuman monsters were kept from falling upon Moreau and Montgomery, and from rending one another. He explained to me that the comparative safety of Moreau and himself was due to the limited mental scope of these monsters. In spite of their increased intelligence, and the tendency of their animal instincts to reawaken, they had certain fixed ideas implanted by Moreau in their minds, which absolutely bounded their imaginations. They were really hypnotized, had been told that certain things were impossible, and that certain things were not to be done, and these prohibitions were woven into the texture of their minds beyond any possibility of disobedience or dispute. Certain matters, however, in which old instinct was at war with Moreau's convenience, were in a less stable condition. A series of propositions, called the law, I had already heard them recited, battled in their minds with the deep-seated, ever-rebellious cravings of their animal natures. This law they were ever repeating, I found, and ever breaking. Both Montgomery and Moreau displayed particular solicitude to keep them ignorant of the taste of blood. They feared the inevitable suggestions of that flavor. Montgomery told me that the law, especially among the feline beast-people, became oddly weakened about nightfall that then the animal was at its strongest, that a spirit of adventure sprang up in them at the dusk, when they would dare things they never seemed to dream about by day. To that I owed my stalking by the leopard-man, on the night of my arrival. But during these earlier days of my stay they broke the law only furtively and after dark. In the daylight there was a general atmosphere of respect for its multifarious prohibitions. And here, perhaps, I may give a few general facts about the island and the beast-people. The island, which is of irregular outline and lay low upon the wide sea, had a total area, I suppose, of seven or eight square miles. It was volcanic in origin, and was now fringed on three sides by coral reefs. Some fumaroles to the northward and a hot spring were the only vestiges of the forces that had long since originated it. Now and then a faint quiver of earthquake would be sensible, and sometimes the ascent of the spire of smoke would be rendered tumultuous by gusts of steam. But that was all. 
The population of the island, Montgomery informed me, now numbered rather more than sixty of these strange creations of Moreau's art, not counting the smaller monstrosities which lived in the undergrowth and were without human form. Altogether he had made nearly a hundred and twenty, but many had died, and others, like the writhing footless thing of which he had told me, had come by violent ends. In answer to my question, Montgomery said that they actually bore offspring, but that these generally died. When they lived, Moreau took them and stamped the human form upon them. There was no evidence of the inheritance of their acquired human characteristics. The females were less numerous than the males, and liable to much furtive persecution, in spite of the monogamy the law enjoined. It would be impossible for me to describe these beast-people in detail. My eye has had no training in details, and unhappily I cannot sketch. Most striking, perhaps, in their general appearance, was the disproportion between the legs of these creatures and the length of their bodies, and yet, so relative is our idea of grace, my eye became habituated to their forms, and, at last, I even fell in with their persuasion that my own long thighs were ungainly. Another point was the forward carriage of the head, and the clumsy and inhuman curvature of the spine. Even the ape-man lacked that inward sinuous curve of the back which makes the human figure so graceful. Most had their shoulders hunched clumsily, and their short forearms hung weakly at their sides. Few of them were conspicuously hairy, at least until the end of my time upon the island. The next most obvious deformity was in their faces, almost all of which were prognathous, malformed about the ears, with large and protuberant noses, very furry or very bristly hair, and often strangely coloured or strangely placed eyes. None could laugh, though the ape-man had a chattering titter. Beyond these general characters, their heads had little in common. Each preserved the quality of its particular species. The human mark distorted but did not hide the leopard, the ox, or the sow, or other animal or animals from which the creature had been moulded. The voices, too, varied exceedingly. The hands were almost malformed, and though some surprised me by their unexpected human appearance, almost all were deficient in the number of the digits, clumsy about the finger-nails, and lacking any tactile sensibility. The two most formidable animal men were my leopard man and a creature made of hyena and swine. Larger than these were the three bull-creatures who pulled in the boat. Then came the silvery hairy man, who was also sayer of the law, Emling, and a satyr-like creature of ape and goat. There were three swine-men and a swine-woman, a mare rhinoceros creature, and several other females, whose sources I did not ascertain. There were several wolf-creatures, a bear-bull, and a St. Bernard-man. I have already described the ape-man, and there was a particularly hateful and evil-smelling old woman, made of vixen and bear, whom I hated from the beginning. She was said to be a passionate votary of the law. Smaller creatures were certain dappled youths and my little sloth-creature. But enough of this catalogue. At first I had a shivering horror of the brutes, felt all too keenly that they were still brutes, but insensibly I became a little habituated to the idea of them, and, moreover, I was affected by Montgomery's attitude towards them. 
He had been with them so long that he had come to regard them as almost normal human beings. His London days seemed a glorious, impossible past to him. Only once in a year or so did he go to Africa to deal with Moreau's agent, a trader in animals there. He hardly met the finest type of manhood in that seafaring village of Spanish mongrels. The men aboard ship, he told me, seemed at first just as strange to him as the beast-men seemed to me, unnaturally long in the leg, flat in the face, prominent in the forehead, suspicious, dangerous, and cold-hearted. In fact, he did not like men. His heart had warmed to me, he thought, because he had saved my life. I fancied even then that he had a sneaking kindness for some of these metamorphosed brutes, a vicious sympathy with some of their ways, but that he attempted to veil it from me at first. Emling, the black-faced man, Montgomery's attendant, the first of the beast folk I had encountered, did not live with the others across the island, but in a small kennel at the back of the enclosure. The creature was scarcely so intelligent as the ape-man, but far more docile, and the most human-looking of all the beast-folk, and Montgomery had trained it to prepare food, and, indeed, to discharge all the trivial domestic offices that were required. It was a complex trophy of Moreau's horrible skill, a bear, tainted with dog and ox, and one of the most elaborately made of all his creatures. It treated Montgomery with a strange tenderness and devotion. Sometimes he would notice it, pat it, call it half-mocking, half-jocular names, and so make it caper with extraordinary delight. Sometimes he would ill-treat it, especially after he had been at the whisky, kicking it, beating it, pelting it with stones or lighted fusees. But whether he treated it well or ill, it loved nothing so much as to be near him. I say I became habituated to the beast-people, that a thousand things which had seemed unnatural and repulsive speedily became natural and ordinary to me. I suppose everything in existence takes its color from the average hue of our surroundings. Montgomery and Moreau were too peculiar and individual to keep my general impressions of humanity well defined. I would see one of the clumsy bovine creatures who worked the launch treading heavily through the undergrowth, and find myself asking, trying hard to recall, how he differed from some really human yokel trudging home from his mechanical labours, or I would meet the fox-bear woman's vulpine, shifty face, strangely human in its speculative cunning, and even imagine I had met it before in some city byway. Yet every now and then the beast would flash out upon me beyond doubt or denial. An ugly-looking man, a hunchbacked human, savage to all appearance, squatting in the aperture of one of the dens, would stretch his arms and yawn, showing with startling suddenness scissor-edged incisors and sabre-like canines, keen and brilliant as knives. Or, in some narrow pathway, glancing with a transitory daring into the eyes of some lithe, white-swathed female figure, I would suddenly see, with a spasmodic revulsion, that she had slit-like pupils, or glancing down, note the curving nail with which she held her shapeless wrap about her. It is a curious thing, by the by, for which I am quite unable to account, that these weird creatures, the females, I mean, had in the earlier days of my stay an instinctive sense of their own repulsive clumsiness, and displayed, in consequence, a more than human regard for the decency and decorum of extensive costume. 
Chapter Sixteen How the Beast Folk Taste Blood. My inexperience as a writer betrays me, and I wander from the thread of my story. After I had breakfasted with Montgomery, he took me across the island to see the fumarole and the source of the hot spring into whose scalding waters I had blundered on the previous day. Both of us carried whips and loaded revolvers. While going through a leafy jungle on our road thither, we heard a rabbit squealing. We stopped and listened, but we heard no more. And presently we went on our way, and the incident dropped out of our minds. Montgomery called my attention to certain little pink animals with long hind legs that went leaping through the undergrowth. He told me they were creatures made of the offspring of the beast people that Moreau had invented. He had fancied they might serve for meat, but a rabbit-like habit of devouring their young had defeated this intention. I had already encountered some of these creatures, once during my moonlight flight from the leopard-man, and once during my pursuit by Moreau on the previous day. By chance one hopping to avoid us leapt into the hole caused by the uprooting of a wind-blown tree. Before it could extricate itself, we managed to catch it. It spat like a cat, scratched and kicked vigorously with its hind legs, and made an attempt to bite. But its teeth were too feeble to inflict more than a painless pinch. It seemed to me rather a pretty little creature, and, as Montgomery stated that it never destroyed the turf by burrowing, and was very cleanly in its habits, I should imagine it might prove a convenient substitute for the common rabbit in gentlemen's parks. We also saw on our way the trunk of a tree barked in long strips and splintered deeply. Montgomery called my attention to this. "'Not to claw bark of trees. That is the law,' he said. "'Much some of them care for it.' It was after this, I think, that we met the satyr and the ape-man. The satyr was a gleam of classical memory on the part of Moreau, his face ovine in expression, like a coarser Hebrew type, his voice a harsh bleat, his nether extremities satanic. He was gnawing on the husk of a pod-like fruit as he passed us. Both of them saluted Montgomery. "'Hail!' said they, "'to the other with the whip.' "'There's a third with a whip now,' said Montgomery, "'so you'd better mind.' "'Was he not made?' said the ape-man. He said he was made. The satyr-man looked curiously at me. "'A third with a whip, he that walks weeping into the sea, has a thin white face.' "'He has a thin long whip,' said Montgomery. "'Yesterday he bled and wept,' said the satyr. "'You never bleed nor weep. The master does not bleed or weep.' Olandorfian beggar, said Montgomery. You bleed and weep if you don't look out. He has five fingers. He is a five man like me, said the ape man. Come along, Prendick, said Montgomery, taking my arm, and I went on with him. The satyr and the ape man stood watching us and making other remarks to each other. He says nothing, said the satyr. Men have voices. Yesterday, he asked me of things to eat, said the ape-man. He did not know. Then they spoke inaudible things, and I heard the satyr laughing. It was on our way back that we came upon the dead rabbit. The red body of the wretched little beast was rent to pieces, many of the ribs stripped white, and the black bone indisputably gnawed. At that Montgomery stopped, 
Good God! said he, stooping down, and picking up some of the crushed vertebrae, to examine them more closely. Good God! he repeated. What can this mean? Some carnivore of yours has remembered its old habits, I said after a pause. This backbone has been bitten through. He stood staring, with his face white, and his lip pulled askew. I don't like this, he said slowly. I saw something of the same kind, said I, the first day I came here. The devil you did! What was it? A rabbit with its head twisted off. The day you came here? The day I came here, in the undergrowth at the back of the enclosure, when I went out in the evening. The head was completely wrung off. He gave a long, low whistle. And what is more, I have an idea which of your brutes did the thing. It's only a suspicion, you know. Before I came on the rabbit, I saw one of your monsters drinking in the stream. Sucking his drink? Yes. Not to suck your drink. That is the law. Much the brutes care for the law, eh, when Moreau's not about. It was the brutes who chased me. Of course, said Montgomery. It's just the way with carnivores. After a kill, they drink. It's the taste of blood, you know. What was the brute like? he continued. Would you know him again? He glanced about us, standing astride over the mess of dead rabbit, his eyes roving among the shadows and scenes of greenery, the lurking places and ambuscades of the forest that bounded us in. The taste of blood, he said again. He took out his revolver, examined the cartridges in it, and replaced it. Then he began to pull at his dropping lip. I think I should know the brute again, I said. I stunned him. He ought to have a handsome bruise on the forehead of him. But then we have to prove that he killed the rabbit, said Montgomery. I wish I'd never brought the things here. I should have gone on, but he stayed there, thinking over the mangled rabbit in a puzzle-headed way. As it was, I went to such a distance that the rabbit's remains were hidden. Come on, I said. Presently he woke up and came towards me. You see, he said, almost in a whisper, they are all supposed to have a fixed idea against eating anything that runs on land. If some brute has by any accident tasted blood, we went on some way in silence. I wonder what can have happened, he said to himself. Then, after a pause again, I did a foolish thing the other day. That servant of mine showed him how to skin and cook a rabbit. It's odd. Saw him licking his hands. It never occurred to me. Then, we must put a stop to this. I must tell Moreau. He could think of nothing else on our homeward journey. Moreau took the matter even more seriously than Montgomery, and I need scarcely say that I was affected by their evident consternation. We must make an example, said Moreau. I've no doubts in my own mind that the leopard man was the sinner. But how can we prove it? I wish, Montgomery, you had kept your taste for meat in hand and gone without these exciting novelties. We may find ourselves in a mess yet through it. I was a silly ass, said Montgomery. But the thing's done now, and you said I might have them, you know. We must see to the thing at once, said Moreau. 
I suppose if anything should turn up, Emling can take care of himself. I'm not so sure of Emling, said Montgomery. I think I ought to know him. In the afternoon, Moreau, Montgomery, myself, and Emling went across the island to the huts in the ravine. We three were armed. Emling carried the little hatchet he used in chopping firewood and some coils of wire. Moreau had a large cowherd's horn slung over his shoulder. "'You will see a gathering of the beast-people,' said Montgomery. "'It's a pretty sight.' Moreau said not a word on the way, but the expression of his heavy, white-fringed face was grimly set. We crossed the ravine down which smoked the stream of hot water, and followed the winding pathway through the cane-breaks until we reached a wide area covered over with a thick powdery yellow substance which I believe was sulphur. Above the shoulder of a weedy bank the sea glittered. We came to a kind of shallow natural amphitheatre, and here the four of us halted. Then Moreau sounded the horn, and broke the sleeping stillness of the tropical afternoon. He must have had strong lungs. The hooting note rose and rose amidst its echoes to at last an ear-penetrating intensity. "'Ah!' said Moreau, letting the curved instrument fall to his side again. Immediately there was a crashing through the yellow canes, and a sound of voices from the dense green jungle that marked the morass through which I had run on the previous day. Then, at three or four points on the edge of the sulphurous area, appeared the grotesque forms of the beast-people hurrying towards us. I could not help a creeping horror as I perceived first one and then another trot out from the trees or reeds and come shambling along over the hot dust. But Moreau and Montgomery stood calmly enough, and perforce I stuck beside them. First to arrive was the satyr, strangely unreal for all that he cast a shadow and tossed the dust with his hoofs. After him from the brake came a monstrous lout, a thing of horse and rhinoceros, chewing a straw as it came. Then appeared the swine-woman and two wolf-women, then the fox-bear witch with her red eyes and her peaked red face, and then others, all hurrying eagerly. As they came forward, they began to cringe towards Moreau, and chant, quite regardless of one another, fragments of the latter half of the litany of the law. His is the hand that wounds, his is the hand that heals, and so forth. As soon as they had approached within a distance of perhaps thirty yards, they halted, and bowing on knees and elbows, began flinging the white dust upon their heads. Imagine the scene, if you can. We three blue-clad men, with our misshapen black-faced attendant, standing in a wide expanse of sunlit yellow dust under the blazing blue sky, and surrounded by this circle of crouching and gesticulating monstrosities, some almost human, save in their subtle expression and gestures, some like cripples, some so strangely distorted as to resemble nothing but the denizens of our wildest dreams, and beyond, the reedy lines of a cane-break in one direction, a dense tangle of palm-trees on the other, separating us from the ravine with the huts, and to the north, the hazy horizon of the Pacific Ocean. Sixty-two, sixty-three, counted Moreau. There are four more. I do not see the leopard-man, said I. Presently Moreau sounded the great horn again, and at the sound of it all the beast-people writhed and groveled in the dust. 
then slinking out of the canebrake, stooping near the ground and trying to join the dust-throwing circle behind Moreau's back, came the leopard-man. The last of the beast-people to arrive was the little ape-man. The earlier animals, hot and weary with their groveling, shot vicious glances at him. "'Cease!' said Moreau, in his firm, loud voice, and the beast-people sat back upon their hams and rested from their worshipping. "'Where is the sayer of the law?' said Moreau, and the hairy grey monster bowed his face in the dust. "'Say the words,' said Moreau. Forthwith all in the kneeling assembly, swaying from side to side and dashing up the sulphur with their hands, first the right hand and a puff of dust, and then the left, began once more to chant their strange litany. When they reached not to eat flesh or fish, that is the law, Moreau held up his lank white hand. "'Stop!' he cried, and there fell absolute silence upon them all. I think they all knew and dreaded what was coming. I looked round at their strange faces. When I saw their wincing attitudes and the furtive dread in their bright eyes, I wondered that I had ever believed them to be men. "'That law has been broken,' said Moreau. "'None escape,' from the faceless creature with the silvery hair. "'None escape,' repeated the kneeling circle of beast-people. "'Who is he?' cried Moreau, and looked round at their faces, cracking his whip. I fancied the hyena swine looked dejected. So too did the leopard-man. Moreau stopped, facing this creature, who cringed towards him with the memory and dread of infinite torment. "'Who is he?' repeated Moreau, in a voice of thunder. "'Evil is he who breaks the law,' chanted the sayer of the law. Moreau looked into the eyes of the leopard-man, and seemed to be dragging the very soul out of the creature. "'Who breaks the law?' said Moreau, taking his eyes off his victim and turning towards us. It seemed to me there was a touch of exultation in his voice. "'Goes back to the house of pain!' They all clamoured, "'Goes back to the house of pain, O master!' "'Back to the house of pain!' gabbled the ape-man, as though the idea was sweet to him. "'Do you hear?' said Moreau, turning back to the criminal. "'My friend!' "'Hello!' For the leopard-man, released from Moreau's eye, had risen straight from his knees, and now, with eyes aflame and his huge feline tusks flashing out from under his curling lips, leaped towards his tormentor. I am convinced that only the madness of unendurable fear could have prompted this attack. The whole circle of threescore monsters seemed to rise about us. I drew my revolver. The two figures collided. I saw Moreau reeling back from the leopard-man's blow. There was a furious yelling and howling all about us. Every one was moving rapidly. For a moment I thought it was a general revolt. The furious face of the leopard-man flashed by mine, with Emling close in pursuit. I saw the yellow eyes of the hyena-swine blazing with excitement, his attitude as if he were half resolved to attack me. The satyr, too, glared at me over the hyena-swine's hunched shoulders. I heard the crack of Moreau's pistol, and saw the pink flash dart across the tumult. The whole crowd seemed to swing round in the direction of the glint of fire, 
and I too was swung round by the magnetism of the movement. In another second I was running, one of a tumultuous shouting crowd, in pursuit of the escaping leopard-man. That is all I can tell definitely. I saw the leopard-man strike Moreau, and then everything spun about me until I was running headlong. Emling was ahead, close in pursuit of the fugitive. Behind, their tongues already lolling out, ran the wolf-women in great leaping strides. The swine-folk followed, squealing with excitement, and the two bull-men in their swathings of white. Then came Moreau in a cluster of the beast-people, his wide-brimmed straw hat blown off, his revolver in hand, and his lank white hair streaming out. The hyena swine ran beside me, keeping pace with me, and glancing furtively at me out of his feline eyes, and the others came pattering and shouting behind us. The leopard-man went bursting his way through the long canes, which sprang back as he passed, and rattled in Embling's face. We others in the rear found a trampled path for us when we reached the break. The chase lay through the break for perhaps a quarter of a mile, and then plunged into a dense thicket which retarded our movements exceedingly, though we went through it in a crowd together, fronds flicking into our faces, ropey creepers catching us under the chin or gripping our ankles, thorny plants hooking into and tearing cloth and flesh together. "'He has gone on all fours through this!' panted Moreau, now just ahead of me. "'None escape!' said the wolf-bear, laughing into my face with the exultation of hunting. We burst out again among rocks, and saw the quarry ahead running lightly on all fours, and snarling at us over his shoulder. At that the wolf-folk howled with delight. The thing was still clothed, and at a distance its face still seemed human. But the carriage of its four limbs was feline, and the furtive droop of its shoulder was distinctly that of a hunted animal. It leapt over some thorny yellow-flowering bushes, and was hidden. Emling was halfway across the space. Most of us now had lost the first speed of the chase, and had fallen into a longer and steadier stride. I saw, as we traversed the open, that the pursuit was now spreading from a column into a line. The hyena-swine still ran close to me, watching me as it ran, every now and then puckering its muzzle with a snarling laugh. At the edge of the rocks the leopard-man, realizing that he was making for the projecting cape upon which he had stalked me on the night of my arrival, had doubled in the undergrowth. But Montgomery had seen the manoeuvre, and turned him again. So, panting, tumbling against rocks, torn by brambles, impeded by ferns and reeds, I helped to pursue the leopard-man, who had broken the law, and the hyena-swine ran, laughing savagely, by my side. I staggered on, my head reeling and my heart beating against my ribs, tired almost to death, and yet not daring to lose sight of the chase lest I should be left alone with this horrible companion. I staggered on in spite of the infinite fatigue and the dense heats of the tropical afternoon. At last the fury of the hunt slackened. We had pinned the wretched brute into a corner of the island. Moreau, whip in hand, marshalled us all into an irregular line, and we advanced now slowly, shouting to one another as we advanced, and tightening the cordon about our victim. He lurked noiseless and invisible in the bushes through which I had run from him during that midnight pursuit. "'Steady!' cried Moreau, 
Steady! as the ends of the line crept round the tangle of undergrowth and hemmed the brute in. Beware of rush! came the voice of Montgomery from behind the thicket. I was on the slope above the bushes. Montgomery and Moreau beat along the beach beneath. Slowly we passed in among the fretted network of branches and leaves. The quarry was silent. Back to the house of pain! The house of pain! The house of pain! yelped the voice of the ape-man, some twenty yards to the right. When I heard that, I forgave the poor wretch all the fear he had inspired in me. I heard the twigs snap, and the boughs swish aside, before the heavy tread of the horse-rhinoceros upon my right. Then, suddenly, through a polygon of green, in the half-darkness under the luxuriant growth, I saw the creature we were hunting. I halted. He was crouched together into the smallest possible compass, his luminous green eyes turned over his shoulder regarding me. It may seem a strange contradiction in me, I cannot explain the fact, but now, seeing the creature there in a perfectly animal attitude, with the light gleaming in its eyes and its imperfectly human face distorted with terror, I realized again the fact of its humanity. In another moment other of its pursuers would see it, and it would be overpowered and captured, to experience once more the horrible tortures of the enclosure. Abruptly I slipped out my revolver, aimed toward its terror-struck eyes, and fired. As I did so, the hyena swine saw the thing, and flung itself upon it with an eager cry, thrusting thirsty teeth into its neck. All about me the green masses of the thicket were swaying and cracking as the beast-people came rushing together. One face, and then another, appeared. "'Don't kill it, Prendick!' called Moreau. "'Don't kill it!' And I saw him stooping as he pushed through under the fronds of the big ferns. In another moment he had beaten off the hyena swine with the handle of his whip, and he and Montgomery were keeping away the excited carnivorous beast-people, and particularly Emling, from the still quivering body. The hair-gray thing came sniffing at the corpse under my arm. The other animals, in their animal ardor, jostled me to get a nearer view. "'Confound you, Prendick!' said Moreau. "'I wanted him.' "'I'm sorry,' said I, though I was not. It was the impulse of the moment. I felt sick with exertion and excitement. Turning, I pushed my way out of the crowding beast-people, and went on alone up the slope towards the higher part of the headland. Under the shouted directions of Moreau, I heard the three white-swathed bullmen begin dragging the victim down towards the water. It was easy now for me to be alone. The beast people manifested a quite human curiosity about the dead body, and followed it in a thick knot, sniffing and growling at it, as the bullmen dragged it down the beach. I went to the headland and watched the bullmen black against the evening sky as they carried the weighted dead body out to sea, and like a wave across my mind came the realization of the unspeakable aimlessness of things upon the island. Upon the beach, among the rocks beneath me, were the ape-man, the hyena-swine, and several other of the beast-people, standing about Montgomery and Moreau. They were all still intensely excited, and all overflowing with noisy expressions of their loyalty to the law. 
yet I felt an absolute assurance in my own mind that the hyena swine was implicated in the rabbit-killing. A strange persuasion came upon me, that, save for the grossness of the line, the grotesqueness of the forms, I had here before me the whole balance of human life in miniature, the whole interplay of instinct, reason, and fate in its simplest form. The leopard man had happened to go under. That was all the difference. Poor brute! Poor brutes! I began to see the viler aspect of Moreau's cruelty. I had not thought before of the pain and trouble that came to these poor victims after they had passed from Moreau's hands. I had shivered only at the days of actual torment in the enclosure, but now that seemed to me the lesser part. Before they had been beasts, their instincts fitly adapted to their surroundings, and happy as living things may be. Now they stumbled in the shackles of humanity, lived in a fear that never died, fretted by a law they could not understand. Their mock human existence, begun in an agony, was one long internal struggle, one long dread of Moreau. And for what? It was the wantonness of it that stirred me. Had Moreau had any intelligible object, I could have sympathized at least a little with him. I am not so squeamish about pain as that. I could have forgiven him a little, even, had his motive been only hate. But he was so irresponsible, so utterly careless. His curiosity, his mad aimless investigations, drove him on, and the things were thrown out to live a year or so, to struggle and blunder and suffer, and at last to die painfully. They were wretched in themselves. The old animal hate moved them to trouble one another. The law held them back from a brief hot struggle and a decisive end to their natural animosities. In those days my fear of the beast-people went the way of my personal fear for Moreau. I fell indeed into a morbid state, deep and enduring, and alien to fear, which has left permanent scars upon my mind. I must confess that I lost faith in the sanity of the world when I saw it suffering the painful disorder of this island. A blind fate, a vast pitiless mechanism, seemed to cut and shape the fabric of existence, and I, Moreau, by his passion for research, Montgomery, by his passion for drink, the beast people, with their instincts and mental restrictions, were torn and crushed, ruthlessly, inevitably, amid the infinite complexity of its incessant wheels. But this condition did not come all at once. I think, indeed, that I anticipate a little in speaking of it now. End of Part 6